building up godly men for a better tomorrow. This is On the Edge with Ken Harrison, where we inspire men of integrity to put faith into action together. Just before we get into today's episode, we'd like to invite you to subscribe to our weekly devotional group. Just text the two words, Promise Keepers, to 31996. Every week you'll receive a challenging devotional that will inspire you to put your faith into action in the real world. Again, text Promise Keepers to 31996. And now, here's today's show. So Matt Matera, man, you got a story. We're going to get into this in a little bit, but... One of the most damaging things going on in our country right now is suicide. It's a horrific issue. We know that there's 127 suicides a day, and 80% of those are middle-aged men. And I, I doubt there's anybody in the world that has had more damage, uh, feeling of abandonment from suicide than you have. I mean, you've seen this tragedy straight up, but you're a man of God, and you've got a lot to say about the issue. So, I mean, just lead us right into your story. Tell us about what you've seen from suicide, and then we don't, we're going to get into what you see. How do people come out of it? How do they deal with it from an issue of Christ and also from just an issue of their own persona? So tell us about your story. Right. Well, first of all, thanks, Ken, for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. And you're right. It is a really heavy topic. It's a high-gravity topic that has been a scourge um, in our country. You, t- you gave numbers for uh, the males that are, are really been affected by this. There's 22 veterans a day approximately that are being lost to this thing. And in my personal journey, over the span of about 30 years, I've lost six people to suicide and self-harm. Uh, I lost my dad when I was six years old. I walked in the bedroom moments after he fired the shot. Um, fast forwarding, I joined the military and I, uh, in 2004, I lost a little brother of mine while stationed overseas doing uh, the country's work. And I had to go back home and bury my little brother next to our dad. He passed away from an overdose. Uh, moving forward, a couple of months later, I got a phone call that an uncle of mine on my mom's side of the family, uh, military veteran, he had taken his own life. And at that point in my f- life and my my faith and my family, I was I was mad at God because I, you know, first my dad, now my little brother. I'm the, I'm the last one left with my dad's name, and then. Uh, now I felt that God had taken my uncle, who was I was really close to. So that was a, a time in my life, a crisis of faith. Moving forward again um, in 2007, transferred from overseas, get stationed in Hawaii. I'm outside washing the Jeep, and I get a phone call from a cousin of mine that his younger sister had taken her own life, just a young lady, beautiful young girl. And, um, you know, again, uh, faith was... Uh, was on the rocks. I was having a hard time trying to square with this. How is can this loving God that knows all things still allow something so terrible to happen? Uh, I went back home and to Rhode Island and we buried my cousin next to my brother, next to my dad. The uncle I had lost a few years prior on my mom's side of the family. He's buried in a cemetery down in Maryland. And then moving forward again in 2012, we uh, were stationed back in the East Coast of the U.S. I'm on board a warship. We're conducting again the nation's business overseas and a Pretty difficult location. And uh, at this point in time, though, I'm, I'm linked up with some good brothers in Christ, some warrior men, not just in the military, but also in the kingdom. And these guys had um, taken me under their wing. We were having a Bible study on board the ship. 
Um, as a matter of fact, one of the gentlemen you, you got a chance to meet when we, mm. when you and I first met. So great guy, my friend Tim Uncafer, awesome um, friend of mine. So at that point, I'm linked up with these good men of God, and then I get an email that an uncle of mine on my dad's side of the family. I was very close to him. He took me under his wing when I lost my little brother, and of course, my dad was his brother. So we had this this common bond together of loss of a brother. I found out that he had taken his own life. And I had to go back home and bury an uncle of mine uh, next to uh, next to a cousin, next to my brother, next to my dad, all in the same cemetery. Now, let me stop you right there. Yeah. Because you're about to go into the most horrific of them all and give us that story. But I want to back you up to the first time. So you're six years old and you hear your parents arguing. And just just help wrap wrap us around that part of that story because of what you saw as a six-year-old boy. So my father had been wrestling with um Drugs and alcohol. He was dealing with. Uh, he was there was a spiritual war going on in his mind. Him and my mom were not. Um, they were young when they married, and I don't think they were probably spiritually, emotionally equipped to be engaged in a relationship like that. Much less have a have a kid. I have two kids. Uh, the night that my father had taken his own life, that was not the first time I had seen my parents engaging in domestic violence. That's not the first time I seen my dad drunk and and uh, you know I'm parents fighting, but something was different about that night. We were in my grandparents' basement, had a nice basement downstairs. It was, had an old fireplace and a couch. I was sleeping on the couch, woke up, looked across, and I saw the phone that my dad had in his hand, the backlit of the screen or the, or the push button on the phone. And uh, they were fighting and arguing. I asked them to say, hey, look, this is I, uh, you guys got to keep it down. I'm trying to sleep. And my mom said, hey, you have a son over there. You got to think about him too. I didn't know what the crisis was at the time. I just knew they were fighting and it seemed more intense. And in my dad's right hand, he had something. And on the floor was a bottle. I could see he had been drinking. I remember my mom went up to go get my grandparents to see maybe if they should, could calm their son down. And I never forget my dad running up behind my mom, putting something against the back of her head um, and telling you, if you go up there, I'll shoot you too. And I'll shoot him too. I don't think my dad would have actually shot me. I don't think he would have. I just think he was speaking out of anger. It was a very dark place, obviously. When she walked into the bedroom to go calm him down, everything seemed to be okay. I thought he was going to sleep it off like had happened so many times before. And as he crosses the threshold from the hallway into the den where I was laying on the couch, I heard the pop sound. It was a small caliber pistol. She stopped in her tracks, ran to the room, screamed, oh my God, no, Michael. Ran back out, told me, you stay right there, don't get up. While she went to go get my grandparents, I got up. I want to see what happened to my dad. And that's when I found him lying on the floor with a self-inflicted gunshot wound. How did you register that? As such a six-year-old boy, there's got to be a part of you that thinks my dad chose to leave me. How did that affect you? I was angry at him. The, uh, the absence of having a father. It, it, in, in that moment, I didn't understand the size and the gravity of it. Because he, he had been in and out of our lives so often. He had been in trouble with the law before. He had he would take off for days and weeks at a time, come back home and try to re-engage in the family. But he wasn't quite there. The the adversary had his heart in his mind. So you were already feeling a bit rejected by your father. I was. And then for him to – the cascade effect of that choice on that fateful day in August 1984 wouldn't be truly um, experienced until years later growing up without a father and growing up in a home without that protection that a father gives that – that certain innate quality that only a father can imbue in their kid, that I didn't have that. And that's probably a big reason why I joined the military, to be part of something bigger than myself, to, to find myself. So so now forward us back to what really is the, the even more horrific scene of your of your life. So you're, 
your uncle has now your second uncle has killed himself and you're feeling surrounded. I mean, your, your brother, your dad, two uncles, your cousin, they've all taken their own lives. Now take us up to this next point. So at this point, it's, um, May of 2015, uh, we have a good cadre of brothers and sisters in Christ that, are, that we're involved with. We're going to church on a regular basis. But our daughter, Elizabeth, who was wrestling with a lot of the same things, you know, hindsight being 2020, I could see that she was wrestling with a lot of the same stuff that other people in our family were wrestling with as, as well, especially my dad. She had been in the hospital three times before for trying to hurt herself um, on a litany of medication. She had more medication for behavioral uh, issues than a pharmacy. I mean, there was stuff in that that medicine cabinet probably put a horse down. How old was she? She was 15 when she 15. passed. Yeah. So after being in the hospital three times um, through different avenues of, you know, in, we're talking inpatient, intensive, one to two week types of uh, inpatient facilities, mental health facilities that that we're trying to trying to really trying to pin down the problem, put a name to it, and uh, they would change in different courses of therapy, talk therapy, and medication therapy, all these different things. None of it obviously worked. May 12, 2015 comes around. I get home from work early. My chain of command was always supportive of me getting home from work early because they knew the issues we were having with Elizabeth. They were right into it. And uh, we were in the process of trying to get her enrolled into a program that would that the military is good at providing support for uh, uh, family members that have an exceptional family member, whether it be a mental health issue or, or a physical issue, they, they, there's some added resources available to that. So I was in the process of enrolling her in that. I get home from work early, uh, get into the closet, take off my uniform, put on my yard work clothes, start uh, cutting the grass. We had a big, decent sized piece of property, about an acre. So I'm on a little green rider mower and, uh, I'm looking at the clock and I can see that the, uh, it's almost time for the bus to show up. So I pull the tractor up to the front of the yard. The, the bus pulls up. Uh, I throttle down, take off my headphones, check the time. She gets off the bus. I see the two little feet from the other side of the bus. She got a little woolly hat on. I wave high at her. She waves high at me. It had been a really rough week for our family leading up to that day because she had gone through a, a breakup with a boy. Social media issues were going on. There was some um, social media bullying taking place with her peers. All the holes in the Swiss cheese were starting to line up. That was the last time I saw Elizabeth on this side of eternity, though. She walked in the house, and I checked the time once more. Figured I had another about half an hour before we had to go to pick up her sister, our other daughter, Isabella, from school. And then we would uh, go get some cheeseburgers before Erica got home from, from work. I finished cutting the grass, pull into the into the into the garage, throttle down the mower, turn it off, get up, walk up the stairs and from the garage into the kitchen, call out her name. Hey Elizabeth, we gotta go. I can't, you know, we gotta go pick up your sister. No response. You know, several minutes went by, looked for her all over the house, went back in, outside, couldn't find her outside. That's when I really started roaring. I thought she had another meltdown. I thought that something had happened where she had ran off, which she had done before. I thought maybe she had hurt herself. I thought maybe she was outside feeding the chickens. We had a little, little pen of about three or four chickens outside. I walked back into the kitchen. I heard the chickens outside. I thought, oh, she's feeding them. Slide the back door open. Hey, Elizabeth. But she's not there. That's why I walked back through. Uh, go outside again, come through the front door. And, and uh, I noticed my bedroom, master bedroom door was open. And I noticed that the closet was on, open and the light was on. Because I had turned all that off. I had shut the door when I had changed. I said, why is my closet light on? my door open, walked over and probably 
10 feet in front of me, maybe I saw her laying on the floor face down. And I thought maybe she had tried to hurt herself, which she had in the past had done. Um, maybe she was having a, an emotional meltdown and was just didn't want to get up. Or maybe she had overdosed on her pills. So I walked over to her, talking to her, hey, we got to go, kid. No response. And that's an eerie feeling because the whole time I didn't know I was talking to a dead person. I walked over to her. I see the Bible on the floor. Uh, the closet looked like a bomb went off. And it just everything was tore up, like, like somebody was looking for something. I uh, leaned over and I saw her and I shook her real quick. Hey, we got to go, kid. And I see the Bible's on the floor. And I saw these little red spots on the Bible, like somebody had dipped their hand in red paint and flicked at the at the paper. And then I rolled her over and just what I saw was horrible. She had she had taken her own life the same way my dad had taken her own life. She got into the hit the handgun safe, the safe that push button safe, had had the keys separated in another location to avoid situations like this. How could this happen? The the just the the sheer horror, the First, my dad, my little brother, now, oh, and then my own. This can't be happening. This, this is a, a nightmare. That's a living nightmare. I need to wake up from it. Man, it's tough to talk about. It's hard. It, it's it's graphic. It's real. It's raw. It's it'll rent space in your head. Seeing that look, and I'm a military guy. I've been at the time I had been in 16, 17, 17 years. You know, you do it with the CPR stuff. You're a law enforcement background. You get it. You know, you know when something's not. You know when something's bad. There's no coming back from it. But I'm checking for vitals. I'm checking, I'm doing CPR. My pulse was going so fast. I thought it was my, I wasn't, I couldn't tell if it was her heartbeat or mine. Um, I called 911 right away. I, I got them, 911, what's, what's your emergency? I remember screaming, get somebody over here right now. My little girl just killed herself. Get her over here right now, please. And I'm trying to compartmentalize it to stay focused, like tunnel vision. And I tell you, they, they say training, right? You, you compartmentalize, but here I'm looking, I'm looking at this, this, just this beautiful face that just has irreparable damage. And that to keep from looking at that, because I, that, that would have just made me fall apart. I said, and I remember telling him, I don't want to be alone. Get somebody over here right now. Please don't let me be alone. Because Eric was at work. I remember the dispatch asking me if I knew how to do CPR. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, I just finished doing that. One of the things that's so graphic is when I remember there was, uh, when I had rolled her over, there was so much blood in the closet that I, I had her blood all over me. And I, I, as I rolled her over, laid her back, and I was, had already checked her vitals. And she said, well, you need to check her vitals. So I'm checking her vitals again. And I had slipped in a puddle of, what the, of some of the damage that had been done. And the weight of my body had pushed on her chest. And the, the last, whatever last bit of air was in her body came out of her lungs. It was just horrible. Horrible. So, worst nightmare. I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy experience what were the next few weeks like i mean you're you're trying to stay strong for your other daughter your wife as a man how do you how do you process that because you 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 sort of don't give yourself permission to fully mourn because you feel like you've got to be strong for the rest of your family how, how did you how do you process all that did, did you hold the pain in or were you able to to get it out so you're right first off it, you know we're, we're expected with the with the protectors of our family and that's one of the big reasons why, just for that to see it, this is my little girl, I'm supposed to protect her and I see this happening. But oh, by the way, I have another little girl who was seven years old at the time, Isabella, and I've got Erica. I got to bear up under those hours and days. was just, it's a blur. It was difficult writing it down because having a journal and stuff to work on the work that I'm doing now. But 
we buried Elizabeth in the same cemetery next to all the other people we lost, mm-hmm. next to my little brother. Yeah, man. And I stood at the end of my cousin's driveway. My cousin, who lost his sister, he lives right across the street from the cemetery. You can see the headstone of my uncle, our uncle, who had taken his own life. You can see his headstone from the end of the driveway. And I stood at the uh, end with Erica the day after we had buried Elizabeth. Of course, we didn't have a headstone. I mean, who, who has a headstone ready to go just in case something like that happens, right? So, and I told Erica, I said, I don't know how God's going to use this, but he's going to use it in a way. And, you know, we're going to make that, that enemy pay. I said a different word, but that, that adversary that killed our little girl, murdered her by renting space in her head and lying to her. You know, you killed my little brother. You killed my dad. But when you took my little girl, now it's personal. Now I'm coming after you. And that was the moment where I decided I'm going to steward this. You know, the Bible says that all things work together for good for those that love God and to the goes that are called according to his purpose. And my motto has been, okay, God, I got a plate full of some all things. You said all things? Well, here's some all things right here. Let's do it. Let's do something with this. Let's make something happen with it. And the other thing that I always reflect on is the parable of the uh, the servants. One guy's given, you know, we'll, say, we'll put it in American dollars. One guy's given 100 bucks. The other guy's given 10 bucks. The other guy's given two nickels, right? And the the servant, he says, you know, my the other two servants invest it. And the, the other servant that's given the the just a, a couple of nickels, you know, I'm going to just bury this. My pastor, he, that's all you're going to give me? Well, that's all I'm going to I'm just going to bury it. I don't want to get on the other side of eternity and God asked me, Matt, what'd you do with what I gave you? And I want to be like, what do you mean what you gave me? You gave me two nickels. You gave everybody else all this good stuff and I just got two nickels. What am I, how am I supposed to invest that? The adversary comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And my intent is to take everything that the adversary did against my family and against all everybody else to try to kill them and then flip the script. And I can't think of a better way to do that than to allow God to use this set of all things for good. That's been my motivation to do this. You know, Matt, there's a lot of people listening to this right now, and it's getting forwarded around to people who have lost people through suicide because they just heard your story and they're like, you got to hear this. And what we're going to deal with in a bit is how to deal with our own issues on that. Mm-hmm. You you kind of gave the answer already, but I just want you to hone in on it a little bit more clearly. What caused you in the wake of that pain to be a fighter instead of a quitter? You know, your whole family, your whole family, a giant chunk had quit. They'd committed suicide. Right. You, if anybody ever had an excuse to take that same way out, did you have those thoughts or was it just, screw you, devil, I'm, I'm going to come get you? Like, like, was there a struggle or was it that clear? Um, well, that first Father's Day, remember she passed away in May, a month later is Father's Day. That was a very difficult Father's Day. And I'll just say this. I'm glad Erica walked in the garage the one day, that Father's Day that night. I'm glad she walked in the garage to check up on me because, you know, the adversary looks for ways to try to rent space in your head through thoughts. And there's such a weight of hopelessness that he tries to infer. So um, it's not uh, it's not this whole, um, I'm this, you know, hardcore commando that's going to push through. It is a very real human side to it. And there's absolutely, he, the, he is a liar. He's a liar from the beginning. The truth is not in him, and that Father's Day was probably the worst one. Difficult, very ch- – but that's where – and she called my friend Tim, by the way. Hey, you need to talk to Matt. And uh, Tim talked me on the phone, and, and that's when I said, wait a minute. This is – no, you're not taking me out. You're not doing it. And, uh, again, I've, I've, I, through, the, through this whole process, I've said some pretty what, – what some uh, fellow Christians probably say, some what we call some irreverent prayers. Mm. But 
God's on the throne and the way Matt's feeling, I mean, dropping a couple of select words is not going to, it's not going to dethrone him. I think he gets God it. likes honest prayers. Yeah. I think he'll take those over their little religious polite prayers any day. Yeah. Especially when you're going through stuff like this and keep it real. And I think, and I'm just wired that way. I've been doing this military thing now for almost, almost 23 years. It's not in my nature to quit. It's not. Satan's a bully. I don't like bullies. I joined the military and I've been around the world. I've seen what bullies do to whole entire cultures. I don't like, and the enemy is a bully. Bullied my kid. Bullied my dad. Bullied my brother. And um, again, it's not my nature. And greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world. Those aren't just words to me. They're not just poetry. It doesn't just sound good. That's real. That's a lifeline. Why do you think your family has suffered from it so badly? Is it a curse? Is it? Is there a medical condition? I'm sure you've processed this. What is it about my particular family that's had so much tragedy in this regard? Yeah, so I'm not a doctor. I'm not a, a therapist, but I'm a guy that's walked through some pretty bad stuff, and I've lost. I've seen people disappear before my eyes and then make the choice to leave. I can tell you is this. I think it's probably almost all of the above. I think there's a biological component. I think there's certainly a behavioral health, mental health component to it. But I think it really, there's a part of this three-part problem set that we're missing, and that's a spiritual component. And I think the faith community and the secular health community have divorced themselves from approaching it from a holistic perspective. There is, we're three-part beings, mind, body, and spirit. Think about this for a second, Ken. We're the only species on God's green earth that when we're wrestle with depression, when we wrestle with self-esteem, when we wrestle with our sense of self-worth, we're the only ones that will self-destruct. The animal kingdom doesn't do that. You don't see, I've, you know, I used to work in an animal shelter when I was a kid for a little while, and I remember seeing animals be brought in that were just abused horribly, and you can tell. They hide at the back of the cage, they're shy, they bite back. None of them go and jump in front of a speeding truck on the highway on purpose. Only human beings do that because we're missing this, where we have a spirit inside of us. And I think it starts from the spirit outward, from the spirit to the mind. The mind is that invisible nexus point between the spiritual realm and the physical. Then it manifests itself in many ways in the physical. I think this is biological precursors maybe. I mean, how many times will we go to the doctor and do a, a, ke- uh, a checkup and they say, hey, do you have a family history of diabetes, heart disease, so on and so forth? And if you know that, if you know you have the genetic proclivity for that, then you just be mindful. Hey, I need to watch my cholesterol intake. I have a family history of high cholesterol. I need to watch my diet or diabetes or so on and so on. I need to exercise, be mindful. That which is not necessarily a vulnerability for other people is for me. And that's the same process we need to take when it comes to this the suicide problem set. There's biological components, I'm sure. Uh, again, I'm not a doctor, but I think there are. I mean, I mean, the neural network in your mind is the most complex computer in, in creation. And then you allow that to not just be the, the, the primary computer for your body, but that's also the housing for your spirit and your soul as well. We lay our lot on top of that, and I think we miss it when we focus only on pharmaceuticals or we only focus on secular talk therapy. And then we, when, the, when the faith community comes in, we just focus on, well, we – Put a uh, kind of a vanilla ice cream type of, well, just believe in Jesus and have faith and it's going to go away. That's not holistic. It's not comprehensive. And I think what needs to happen is, again, this is my experience. Collectively, the grownups in the room, everybody that's a leader in the community, whether it be in the, at the schoolhouse, at the courthouse, at, at, the, at, at, on the, at City Hall, or at, at our home, the parents, collectively, we need to be asking ourselves some very uncomfortable questions. And be humble, humble enough to face some very inconvenient truths about 
where the suicide problem sets coming on, especially when it comes to our youth today. You know, I teach a lot on Satan. It's, it, it's something we don't talk about much. And really what Satan does is push us in the direction that whichever direction he can to get us away from the Lord. And in, I think you're making a great point in that we all have different proclivities. You know, I, one of the things I tell Christians all the time is stop arguing about things that you can't know. For instance, um, people who are godless love to suck us into arguments to, to get us onto a ground where we're not there's nothing there. If it's, if you're not talking from scripture, then you're not talking anything that makes sense. <laughs> People will say, well, I was born gay. So therefore, and then Christians run around, no, you weren't born gay. Well, you don't know how that person was born, right? Yeah. We're all born with a sinful nature. And some people are born with a proclivity for being alcoholics. We, we know that. We, we see that going through races. Some people are born through proclivity for suicide or sexual perversion of one kind or another. We're all born with a sinful nature. Mm -hmm. Satan is just taking us and pushing us towards whichever, wherever he can get us to go. Sure. And so that's really what you're saying. That's yeah. what I'm hearing you say. Yeah. So it's not that you're not saying that the devil is inactive. It's not that you're not, you're saying it's not medical. You're saying it's all those things. We have an enemy there that's just going, hey, man, if you've got high cholesterol, let me just whisper in your ear all the time about hamburgers. You want more and more right. hamburgers and get, grab a milkshake with it. Yeah. If you're suicidal, let me go on and on about your lack of worth in this world and on and on. So that I think it's important. Again, a part of this show is I want to get people to think critically and to stop jumping into tribes and saying it's all this way or it's all that way. Mm -hmm. And to start thinking, what does God's word actually say about the issue? Right. And not running off and saying, well, I listen to this teacher or that teacher and so everybody else is wrong. Yeah. What does God's word say? Yeah. And God's word is the ultimate authority. It's the highest authority. At the end of the day, you know, there's man's opinion and there's God's word. And, it, you know, if, if your opinion's out of line with God's word, well, guess what? Guess what's wrong? Not God's word. Society and the church, human beings in general, we like to try to over compartmentalize things. Uh, something, something that's so high gravity and complex like suicide. And we think, well, we're just going to have, let's have an awareness month, which I'm not knocking that. That's, that's good to have that. Let's have an awareness month. And let's, ha let's have a little, uh, a little campaign for a week here. Uh, I wrote a blog that talked about uh, forgetting September because September, every September is Suicide Awareness Month. Right? And I forgot it was September. Uh, and people say, Matt, you know it's Suicide Awareness Month, right? And I said, oh, it is? Because for like, me, I'm aware enough. Thanks. Right. <laughs> and, and, but for me, it's like I, I lost a – how about May? May is the month I lost my, 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 my daughter and so on and so forth. We like to try to put cliche Band-Aids as a fix action to mitigate right. this very complex, convoluted, high-gravity uh, problem set. And here's the thing, and you mentioned it, critical thinking, strategic thinking and analyzing this and have the humility and say, okay, there are resources available in the in – the, in the, physiological world when it comes to medication and, and, and uh, you know, therapy. There's talk therapy. There's also a spiritual problem set. The adversaries as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And us as Christians, we got to be so careful not to compartmentalize this thing called spiritual warfare to this out there and nebulous ether somewhere when it's, it's right here, right now. We see it manifest itself in ideologies and narratives. And this is the world I work in, in the military without getting in too much, but leveraging kind of going back to answer uh, a second part to answer your question there. How did I step into, okay, I lost my daughter and, and, and where I'm at now. My job in the military, I'm used to seeing a very complicated enemy that is nesting into so many avenues of approach in life that, that seeks to take advantage of seams and gaps 
and wants to take key terrain to influence hearts and minds of people. And I realized, wait a minute, those same TTPs that I've learned in the military, tactics, techniques, and procedures, I've learned to be able to tear down and take apart, dissect, deconstruct, and ultimately disintegrate a complex enemy in the physical plane. I'm going to apply that same warfare capability to an adversary because this is war. It's a war in the highest order. It's the battlefield for the hearts and minds of the human race. And we see the very brightest of us and the most vulnerable of us being taken down by this unseen adversary through very powerful avenues of approach, informational avenues of approach to get them to do certain whispering lies in their mind and exploiting those proclivities that already kind of pre-exist in their life. So I, I wanted to give the audience a little bit of a break from your story of your daughter, because there's a lot of people who heard that and freaked out because they have daughters. And, you know, I, I, this is my experience. I have a daughter, two sons. I find that I know where my sons are a lot more than my daughter, right? G girls have a way of bullying and being bullied and, and not showing it like boys do because mm -hmm. boys come home with bloody noses when That's they're right. being bullied, yeah. right? And, and people heard that and thought, holy cow, uh, they, they've heard about people at their school that, that committed suicide and they're thinking, how will I know if, if that's my child? What are the things that you, I mean, you, you had warnings, your daughter had been hospitalized, I think three times for this. What advice would you give them? What to look for if their child maybe is on that train? Yeah. Good question, Ken. So there are Certain things that have to come into alignment for a disaster to take place. The weatherman looks at that and he sees certain things, environmental factors, temperature, barometric pressure, uh, you know, warm air, colder, all these different things that uh, have to come into alignment in order for a hurricane or a tornado or anything like that, an atmospheric phenomenon or disaster. There are certain elements that have to come into alignment and in the right proportions, or I should say the wrong proportions, but in the if... They're in the, the, uh, certain proportions and a certain connection with each other, they're a recipe for disaster. So what do I mean? So Elizabeth, I said that I saw our family disappear before my eyes and, and no one more so than our own daughter, seeing her change over time. And people, if they go in the blog, they can see I put pictures of her up. She started out with, uh, you know, little pink princess dresses and bows and Barbie dolls and all that. And then... Slowly, as time progressed, she started gravitating and orbiting around themes and messages and certain types of genres that exemplified and glorified and glamorized, ultimately, a dark narrative of death, depression, and destruction. And I think that for her, like many other kids, the social media and the smartphone became a force multiplier for that. Specifically help us out. Specifically, what types of things were you seeing that? So she started to gravitate towards certain types of music that had uh, themes and messages that glorified uh, words and, and, and the genres that, were, that basically said, you know, hey, uh, uh, I'm, I'm depressed and being depressed is a good thing. Uh, it's, uh, she started, <laughs> without naming the types of stores you go to and, 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 the, and the types of brands and stuff like that, but she was buying clothes that were all black. Started wearing a heavy black eyeliner. Kind of that goth. Yeah. Yeah. That whole, that genre, that subset, emo, goth, and all this, all these different labels we put on it. But to me, you know, 
being in an organization where uniform and what you wear on the outside is really a representation of not just who you are as an individual, but you're part of something bigger than yourself. It's representing something, almost an idea, right? So when you wore the, the badge in the LAPD, you, were, you represented this whole thing of all things LAPD to protect and serve. The, mil- the, uh, the military, we are our uniform and all kind of the whole, the themes and messages and the heritage that comes with that. These young kids today, they start wearing what could almost be like a uniform. They start putting wearing certain types of dress and certain types of things to identify them within a certain tribe, certain type of subset and certain type of genre. And the themes and message, if you look at it, it's glorifying one thing, dark, depressed. Uh, it glorifies the drama, the, the, the cutting, the, 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 the girls especially. I mean, Elizabeth was cutting and she learned that from another girl who learned that from another kid who learned that from another kid. The dark eyeliner, she started changing her hair and, and, and dyeing her hair different, you know, you know, different colors. And again, all these different things in and of themselves are innocuous. It's kind of like, okay, so you get, you buy hair dye, but then you're listening to this music all the time and you look at the lyrics. That's themes and messages. It's information. That's how people are programmed. They're programmed through informational power. I mean, if that wasn't the case, then what's the whole point of the advertising industry? Again, working this world of information, and I'm seeing, I'm look, I'm reading the lyrics. Hindsight being 2020, I went back through playlist and looked at her lyrics. Like, oh my gosh! Give us some of those groups so people know. Uh, uh, let's see, Memphis Mayfire, Blood on the Dance Floor. Those are the two off the top of my head. Uh, Black Veil Brides. And what what is what kind of music is that? Screamo, screamo, screamo emo, and it's but it's it's not just that genre of music and necessarily if if there's other. There's other genres of music, but if you if you take the if you take the instrumentals out and you take the you take the beats out and all that stuff, and you just look at the lyrics, themes and message across the board in the secular world, it's like glorifying death, destruction, misogyny, drug abuse, lawlessness, all the way down the line, and that becomes a repeating soundtrack to a person's life. They're influencing, it's shaping and conditioning people's behavior, and we take it for granted. We take it for granted, like the air that we breathe. You know, I'm uh, I live in Texas. And Texas is at or near sea level. I come out here and I'm going through the airport, right? <laughs> and you know where I'm going with this. I'm, go- I'm going to the airport and I'm taking my luggage. I'm a pretty in-shape guy. And I'm like, I feel out of breath. This is- and I'm like, oh, let me just- that's right. Colorado, check the – I'm like 7,000 plus feet above sea hey, level. we got some snow going on for you here. I know, right? Erica lo- loves it. I can't stand the snow. But anyway, and we went to Pikes Peak this, this afternoon and we got even higher. I'm like, man, this is – and, she, and he said, I asked the guy, the, uh, I mean, I'm getting to something here. I asked the, the ranger, I said, hey, what's, what's the percentage oxygen, oxygen rates? I'm a science nerd. He goes, well, uh, you're probably at 80% capacity, what you would normally at sea level. I said, really? And that 20%, you notice it. It's information is like the air that we breathe. We take it for granted. We just think, okay, we just do it. We consume it. We consume it. We consume it. But the way we metabolize it and how does that have that, of, that effect in our cognition, our worldview and our behaviors. Elizabeth seems a message, themes and messages that she was absorbing and ingesting constantly. And then she's wearing the clothes that kind of exemplified on an outward appearance, what was going on in her heart and mind. And it just wasn't her. You look at all the kids around you and you see them. It's like, man, there's something going on there. There's, mm-hmm. she's putting all these body piercings and I'm not knocking a body piercing, but I'm talking when you start taking all these things and the holes of Swiss cheese start to line up and it's providing a picture and at some point, you got to say, okay, something's not right. You're, you're out of alignment with, your, with, with God's perfect will for your life. You're exemplifying certain things and getting drawn into certain things that are on a path of destruction. At what point do I cut it off and say, okay, I need to step in? Somebody needs to be a grown-up in the room and say, okay, that's enough. 
I mean, we put the foot down. We tell our kids, hey, no, you're not going to eat candy all the time. We probably should do the same thing with the stuff that they're ingesting in their, through their eyes and ears. That's powerful. I mean, um, I think this is a growing fear in parents mm-hmm. nowadays. Is there – I mean, you're a macho guy. You're a manly man. A, a man's man and a lot of times we see this and we think oh well if I only would have been more of a man but I don't think you needed to be more of a man yeah. a lot of people listening to this going gosh they've had tragedy in their lives and somehow blaming themselves you might be able to give them some comfort and go career military guy mm-hmm. you were all the man that you could be and you still have these tragedies yeah right yeah yeah so the the what if game and the shoulda woulda coulda game is that's is a Something that the the enemy will seek to exploit, and that's something that I walked through when I lost my little brother. Oh, I should have been there for him. I was stationed overseas, and I left him. I left him back home, and I never should have joined the military. And the enemy, you know, the Bible says there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus who walk after the Spirit, not after the flesh. And condemnation takes on different color sizes and shapes. And one of those is the shoulda, woulda, coulda game. You know, there's one thing to use hindsight 2020 as for lessons learned. Like, okay, now I can see some markers there. Let me annotate that to it. And to ensure that I don't do that again. But if you're any man holding this plan to the plow and looking back, it's not fit for the kingdom of God. Meaning if you're constantly looking, driving forward through life, looking at the mirror, rear view mirror through an attitude of regret, that's when staying up to 2 o'clock in the morning, drinking beers, drowning your sorrows comes in. That's where arguing with your wife and having resentful conversations about the stupidest little things, nickel and dime stuff, because you're wrestling with this sense of bitterness and you're against yourself instead of taking the time to pause. Okay, Lord, again, here's this plate of all things. Let's do something with this. Today's episode is brought to you through the generosity of Waterstone. For nearly 40 years, Waterstone has assisted givers in supporting their favorite charities, like Promise Keepers, by crafting customized, innovative giving solutions. Waterstone gift strategists stand ready to create your personalized charitable plan, utilizing business interests, real estate, appreciated assets, charitable trusts, giving funds, and more. These donor-specific giving strategies allow givers to bypass capital gains taxes, receive a fair market value charitable deduction, and have tax-free growth for years to come. Prioritize income, minimize taxes, and optimize your giving with Waterstone. Find out how to give and receive the most from your assets by visiting www.waterstone.org. And now, back to today's show. Talking to Matt Matera about just the tragedy of um, suicide, and um, Matt's got a great book, lifelong uh, military officer, got a great website and great resources for anybody who's suffering from this issue. So I want to take something on now that's it's very necessary in this conversation because I know where some people's minds are going, and that is a very awful theology, legalistic theology, godless theology, that people who commit suicide go to hell. Now, where that comes from is Christ's words. He says that anybody who destroys this temple, referring to our own bodies, I will destroy him. And Jesus is talking about judgment in the afterlife of Christians, not heaven and hell. And we mistake those things a lot. Mm-hmm. For everybody who's listening to this now, if you've lost somebody and you've dealt with this a lot, when you're saved, when you have given your life to Christ, when you've believed in the Lord, you are saved and you are going to heaven and no one can rip you from his hands. And you can't rip yourself from his hands by killing yourself. Right. 
your daughter, had she given her life to Christ, is with him and is waiting for you when you get there. And when Jesus said, I will destroy him, he's talking about the judgment seat of Christ of the Christians and loss of rewards. He's not talking about heaven or hell. I think that's very important for people to know. And you're a man of scripture, and I know you've worked, walked through this. Yeah. No, I agree. The, uh, 100%, Ken. There's um, a lot of uh, bad, I don't want to say theology, that bad, bad gouge out there that's talked. People speak it from ignorance, but it's that ignorance invokes pain. My daughter, she, I remember we were at, uh, at Wave Church. She was after her first hospital stay. And uh, they had an altar call, Wave Churches in Virginia Beach, pastored by Steve Kelly, great guy. And she raised her hand. This is after her first hospital stay. She was, gosh, 13, had just uh, turned 13 years old. <laughs> I remember they, you know, they, they gave her a Bible, and they kind of talked to her a little bit about the process and what that means. But you know, she grew up in a Christian home, so she knew notionally what it meant. But but I remember she gave her life to the Lord. You know, it's funny. To my dad gave, gave his life to the Lord. And I write about this uh, in my in my, my my story, and I share this. There's a, a church. I don't know if it's still there anymore, but uh, shortly after he had passed away back in 84, uh, about a year later, my little brother's born now, and we go. my mom takes my brother and I to that church, and we were attending that church regularly. My mom shows me in the guest book. Remember the old churches? They used to have, like, the guest, right? And, and in there, it had his name, Michael Matera, the pastor's name, and reason for visit wanted to give his life to the Lord. Hmm. And I remember even my father, when I was a little boy, uh, reading the Bible, and that was probably the most serene moments I ever had in the short time that I had with him, the six short years. I'm sitting at the kitchen table drinking a cup of coffee. He drank Sanka, <laughs> instant coffee. That's not coffee. That's not that, coffee. That's, I know. A, that's a affront to humanity. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's like, a, yeah, exactly. And he, he was sitting there drinking his Sanka and going through it and reading it with a highlighter. Um, but... So I know I'll see him, and I know I'll see uh, I know I'll see my daughter and my little brother. Uh, so I agree hundred percent that that is not a a a showstopper for God, and God can save to the uttermost for sure. You know, you uh, you quoted Romans eight one. There's no therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What's so interesting about that passage is it it basically is the therefore now after Romans chapter seven, and Romans chapter seven is all about self-effort, about really trying hard to be good Christians on our own effort. And then Paul lives out this lament of, oh, wretched man that I am. All the things that I know I should do, I don't do. And all the things that I know I shouldn't, I, I do. Who will save me from this state that I'm in? And then he says, ah, oh, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and bridges over to a life lived in the spirit and not in the flesh. That's right. And that's where Paul says, living your life in the flesh leads to death. A life lived in the spirit it leads to life. And he's not talking about salvation there again. He's talking about the quality of life in Christ. He's talking about a believer. The, the carnal believer lives in, in the flesh and death. And you're seeing, you're talking about some of that destruction and the result of a believer who does not live in the spirit. Mm -hmm. They stay in the flesh, they get in a fight with their wives. They put a bullet to their head or they go to the bar and they drive drunk or the million of things that we do that ruin our lives because we're so busy trying to be religious in our own effort mm -hmm. instead of being in the spirit. That, I think, is a really important truth that you're bringing out and what you're yeah. talking about. Yeah, because I think that in our modern American church version of Christianity, we try to manufacture or uh, righteousness. We try to... Uh, make this righteousness as if something we can try to produce it on our own. When the righteousness comes through him, we've already been declared righteous through Christ, but we still have to walk out our 
uh, our life needs to be re- a reflection of that. Now, now that it already is so, you need to live as such. It's um, we hear this example a lot. It's like you you are now a millionaire. You're a multimillionaire. It's up to you at this point to decide how you want to live. Do you want to still live as somebody that's can't that's making it from paycheck to paycheck, can barely make ends meet, and still live in poverty, or do you want to live as the millionaire? Because I have already decreed you a millionaire, and it's the the thing is, uh, and it's as simple as okay. Well, then accept, accepting that, and it kind of having that 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 cognitive connection, heart and mind connection. Realize, okay, this is who I am in Christ. I'm no longer a natural man. I've been re, re, reborn. I've been rejuvenated, and now through Him, um, I mean, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul, when he did when he wrote that, went from seven to eight. You can see him almost as he was writing that to himself. Because think about his background. I mean, he was the head assassin of Christians at the time. This guy was and he qualified with paper saying they gave him deputized by the Sanhedrin. Go do it and make it happen. And he knew the law and he was an expert. And think about the stuff that he wrestled with. And I think that Romans and just as a side, it was probably more of a letter to himself in some some ways. As let him know, okay, wait a minute, Paul, it's going to be okay because there's no condemnation. So, yeah, we were. Uh we talked to a woman at Waterstone here. We deal with all kinds of different situations. And this woman's husband had passed away. And it was one of those old school marriages where he did all the finances, had all the money. She had no idea what was going on with anything. And she had said, well, you know, I can't spend any money and I can't give any money to anybody because I got to make sure I have enough to survive on. Because she only had $100 million that he left her. Only. And with $100 million, how was she possibly going to make ends meet? You know, because you got to pay the gas bill. And, you know, it's kind of what you're talking about. She right. didn't give her self permission to be wealthy. She wasn't using what she had or the freedom. She was living in bondage. That's what we do when we don't walk in the spirit. We live in a, in a flesh prison or bondage. Yeah. And I think we have to give ourselves permission to be able to be, hey, I'm a child of God. I have permission. I have permission granted, authorized, deputized, and sanctioned, commissioned to be heaven's executive agent here on earth. To walk out what the kingdom says uh, is my duty's responsibility to invoke thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's been given to us now. Go ye into the nations making disciples. That's our job. And we have and, and everything that's nested into that, the inheritance of Christ. And it's not just like Naaman and Claimant, I profess a new Corvette. By the way, if anyone wants to give me a Corvette, I'll take it. But that's not how that works. That's all. Oh, Go by the seventy-eight Stingray, man. That was the coolest. <laughs> so my uncle, you know, it's funny. My, uh, my uncle that took his, like, he had a sixty-three split back. That was beautiful. Okay, that actually was the coolest. That was the coolest. Yeah. So for sure. You said something early on in our conversation. I think is really key. You said you continue to look for male figures to mentor you, which is why you joined the military. Right. How much of a difference would it have made if you'd have found a godly man that would have poured into you as a young? as a young boy. Oh my gosh, man. If I had a time machine, right? But then we wouldn't be here right now. I mean, seriously, if I could take my flux capacitor to 88 miles per hour, <laughs> back to I'm telling you, we are living in a time right now, and we've talked about this before, that where strong male leadership is at such a deficit right now. And it's, it, it, it's really, it, and it's, it's really, it's not just outside the four walls of the church. In many ways, it seems like so much ministry is dedicated towards, it has a has a, a, a certain genre to it that the men aren't allowed to be male leaders in the church. And I went back, I look back when I was a kid, and I write about this in my book too. I talk about how my mom didn't allow these men to pour into me. No, this is my son, this is my son, I'm one of these are my boys. And there is, a, it has an emasculating effect. The man, only, only a father 
can imbue every. I mean, everything about fatherhood, even the mechanics of fatherhood, it's all about depositing something and depositing something into your children that is only a father can give. Your identity, your ma- your name comes from your dad. Your identity comes. If I, you know, folks can look too. I got pictures of my father, pictures of me when I had a lot more hair, and then of course my uh, my son. And it's like spit an image. Matter of fact, if you look at a picture of my son, Marcus, who's three years old now, you look at him next to my dad when he was a little almost, it's like, it's like spitting. You can't te- differentiate the two. Really? I'm the anomaly with the red hair and freckles, but still you look at all of us at, especially at certain ages, like man, father, son, and grandson, it would have been night and day having that protection, that, that quality, that assurance of, I know who I am, that confidence and that strength that, um, that a father can give to his kids and that, that sense of assuredness and, and, and I know who I belong to. And that was a big question I had growing up. It was difficult. There were men in the church that deposited here and there, but they're never allowed to get too close because my mom wouldn't let them. And that's been a, a big, another big reason why I wrote this book. I the other, this, needs, this message needs to be heard. It is important that, you know, there are women out there that are, that are single moms right now. And, you know, they lost their husband. They went through a divorce, whatever. But they, if they have sons and daughters, our kids need to see what a positive reflection of a good, what a good male, male role model is. We do a lot of propping up of the single mother, right? And they, they do have a hard job. But with that, we also need to prop up fatherhood and the importance of that and what that looks like. Good fatherhood. So you said something that made people's ears perk up, which is that you have a book. It comes out in April? April, yeah. And where do they go to get the book? So they'll be able to get it through, uh, through Amazon. They'll be able to order it uh, through Kindle. And they, get a, they can get a hard copy through Amazon. They can get a, uh, a soft copy through Kindle. And in the meantime, they can follow the blog and kind of get a, a, a free read-ahead, some of the prologue and the first couple chapters. And then they'll have a chance to not only read that and get a, some inside track of to my personal story, but some of the other things nested in with that grief and loss. And I talk about how my road of grief, and I talk about the feelings I had after Elizabeth passed away, reconciling this this list of all things with God, stewardship of all things. A lot of people say that, Matt, I don't know how you can carry this burden on your shoulder all the time. And I tell them, this isn't a burden. This is an opportunity to steward something, a golden opportunity to open the hearts and minds and free millions of people and change their perspective on how they look at this thing called suicide. It's taboo. Nobody wants to talk about it. It's uncomfortable. It's difficult. But also kind of get ahead of, hey, what's causing this rising rate of suicide with our 10 to 24-year-olds? Mm-hmm. And that's the question people have asked me time and again. Man, we saw all these kids killing themselves, 10 to 24, really since 2007. Why? I kind of talk about that a little bit and what I think, uh, you know, my information warfare theory is behind that. I talk about uh, some of the things when it comes to if you are somebody on the outside – of uh, a family or a friend who's recently lost someone to a, to a suicide or some other tragedy, things to say and things to not do, things that I saw that when Eric and I were going through our journey of grief, things that really would have been good that people didn't do, and also things that people did do that resonate. So there's a lot there. It's packed with a lot of information. So what's the title of the book? Hope, My Story of Love, Loss, and Faith. Hope, My Story of Love, Loss, and Faith. And if someone's Googling you, Give us the spelling of your name because it's not not how I would guess it to be. Yeah, so it's Matera, M-A-T-T-E-R-A, first name Matthew, Matthew Matera. And uh, you can find that on social media and uh, Facebook as well. And they'll be able to get the book in April. 
The book will be released in April. Hope, uh, my story of love's loss and faith. And the website one more time? www.charteredlife365.com. Okay, so as we as we start to wrap up, we talked about how to recognize this in your child, but what about your spouse? And what are the things to do or not do if you suspect maybe your husband or wife is um, going down this road and, and people feel powerless? One of the things they can obviously do is go to your website and get more information. Sure. But what what kind of, I mean, you're, you know, if you're if you're 50, your wife's probably not listening to Screamo and painting her room black. <laughs> right. So what what kind of things are we looking for? So my uncle, when he took his life, he was uh, in his 50s. And there was across the board, and it's, it's, you know, it's interesting to talk about that because the demographic, the, the fastest rising rate of suicide uh, demographic is that the, the, the 10 to 24-year-olds. The largest demographic. Now you said 10 to 24 10 to 24. That means a 10-year-old had to take their own life and get that statistic in the first place. That's horrible. Yeah. Um, so that's the fastest growing, the, the rap, most rapidly rising demographic, but it's not the largest demographic. The largest demographic is middle-aged white males. And these are numbers that the CDC tracks. These are numbers that uh, several suicide awareness prevention organizations track. And we're talking about uh, men being 3.5 times percent more likely to take their own life than a woman. And then with that, you have within that demographic is obviously middle-aged white males. Hopelessness across the board is probably the number one precursor marker of somebody when they cross that threshold. They say, you know what? I've given up hope. There's no reason for me to be any here anymore. You know, my the speculation that when my uncle took his own life, that he was wrestling with a with an illness. We don't know, but he had been through a lot of things in his past that had brought that that weighed on him. Yeah, and this uncle was not from the same your dad's side. Well, this this is, yeah, this oh, was, this he my, was one of my dad's okay. older brothers. Well, yeah. one of the uncles was from your mother's from my mom's side, okay. but also he was a I don't know how old he was when he passed. I think he was born in '53. A couple of years younger than my mom, but he wrestled with a lot alcoholism, substance abuse, self-esteem issues, a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning. Uh, everybody needs to have a sense of purpose and everybody does have a purpose, but everybody needs to have a strong sense. Hey, I'm here for a reason. This is my purpose. And I'll tell you what, there's been such a, to tie it back to, you know, this with men, right? There's been such an active campaign to try to, to diminish, to change, to dim the, the role of positive manliness and masculinity, Christian godly man, uh, masculinity. And I think this had a cascade effect on a whole generation of men today. So Matt, why, why white men? I mean, what, what, what does race have to do with suicide? Wow. That's a loaded question. And it's something that, uh, it's a very difficult thing. Well, I'm to trying to get about. you in trouble. Yeah. I'm right. No, I appreciate that. Um, it's a loaded question and it's something that we has to be, but it, it's something that can't be avoided and you got to just approach it strategically. Here's the deal. For a long time, really since the, since the advent of a lot of mainstream television and movie, there are a lot of fathers in the home, whether from The Simpsons to Married with Children, uh, go all the way back to All in the Family. Dads in the home have been portrayed as a, a buffoonish, clumsy, beer drinking, uh, clock in, sit my butt on the couch, yell at the kids. I have nothing valuable to say. The movie, uh, the, movie the TV show, The 70s Show. Was almost a a parody of a par. It was a parody of that, and it really highlighted that. Red Foreman, the cat, you know, uh, he comes off as you know insensitive. I don't care. I'm old school. I'm crusty, and uh, I just want to drink a beer. Leave me alone. And what that's done is it's over time. 
I think it slowly chipped away at that sense of purpose, that valuable and even sacred duty and responsibility that fathers have in the home. A father's role in the home is just as precious, just as sacred, just as important as the role of a mother's. And I think that uh, it's that's part of a spiritual warfare campaign plan that the adversary's waged. He's intelligent. And he says, if I want to cause major problems and unstitch that golden thread in American families today in Western culture, then what I'm going to do is go ahead and go right to the top. I'm going to go right to the head. And if I once I can cut off the head and or corrupt it, then I can further on down the line have a metastic effect on the rest of the body, meaning it metastasizes and a cascade effect in the families today. Why white males? Because I think that uh, look at all the character, caricatures. They're constantly portrayed and in, in, in look at the guy. What's he look like? And I think that's an easy, it's easy to pick on. It's easy to do because you have other, other groups and demographics that it's, it, they have their, their groups and the demographics. But if you get a group of guys associated to get like that, a group of white males associated with that, then there's almost a, uh, maybe a racial overtone to that. There's other things that get inferred upon that. And again, zooming lens out to the, to the 10,000 foot level, I think that's a part of a spiritual warfare campaign tactic. Influence 101. Influence is part of asymmetric warfare. Happens, takes place all the time on the temporal plane. I understand this. This is one of my, some of my expertise. And you're really, spiritual warfare is no different than physical warfare, except with using bombs and bullets. The adversary uses information, misinformation, disinformation, narratives, ideologies, and Paul talks about that. Strongholds. That's exactly what those are. So what I what I heard you say, you gave the answer of why men, and then you you gave somewhat of an answer of why white men, and it seems like there's been an attack on obviously on masculinity, and then on being white, and so if suicide is tied into your identity and sense of purpose, and all you ever hear is that you're bad because you're a man and you're bad because you're white, if you're a white man, you have less of a sense of purpose, and I think that should wake all of us up. Now we as the children of Christ have the truth for people and there's so much need walking around there. I mean, you look at your daughter, she came home, probably we don't know thinking she was going to do what she did. You waved her, she waved back and went about her business. There was nothing about that. Every day we come into contact with people who are in deep need. They're distraught. They may be suicidal. And we have the truth. If we're just opening our eyes and saying, Lord guide me today, how can I be used today to save someone for your kingdom? That's right. That's right. Yeah. As we wrap up, um, last thoughts. I mean, this is a massive issue no one's talking about. And, and I think you're as, as at the forefront from an experiential point as anybody. Yeah. Last thoughts for people. This, uh, this topic of suicide is high gravity. Uh, it can't be glossed over. It's not something that uh, you just make a, a cute little bumper sticker and uh, a cute little T-shirt and just think it's going to go away. It's a lot deeper than that. Whenever... You look at another person walking down the street. You have no idea what there's going, what's going through their mind. When my daughter was her last day at school, there were kids that wanted to say hi to her because they knew something was going on. But they couldn't put their finger on it. They're just kids. Fast forwarding days and weeks after she had taken her own life, we were approached by several of them like, man, we wish we had said something to her. Stop and say something to the person. Stop and pause. Ask them, how you doing? They'll, you'll probably get the shrug of the shoulder. Yeah, I'm okay. Don't take that as face value. They're not okay. Spend some time with them. Be involved. Think outside yourself for a little bit. Put the cell phone down and zoom the lens out from this, this overwhelming plague of narcissism we see today because of this stuff. And can make a connection with someone. Make a phone call. When it comes to the guys that are the, 
the largest demographic, man, sometimes my friend Tim, he can call me up and he knows when he's like, hey, man, how you doing? You've been on my mind. I'm doing all right. And that's what we need to do as men. Be willing to be vulnerable. Reach out to another guy. We don't need to wear this 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 mask. We don't need to wear this facade. And guess what? If society's telling us that we don't have a role, they're lying. Let's assume our role, our rightful duties and responsibility. And look at what God's words have to say. Encourage one another as brothers and remind each other that no matter what society is saying, until the culture changes, and that's the church's job, is to until the church ultimately owns the culture. In the meantime, we as brothers and warriors in God's kingdom need to be looking to the left of us and looking to the right of us and building each other up as men, being accountable. I mean, I've got, I'm a vulnerable guy and I'm open kimono. Tim is my covenant eyes partner. Hey, let's be, let's be accountable with each other. Uh, I make sure I don't hang out with certain people and do certain things. And I'm open kimono with that because we as men, as a, we need to get that warrior culture um, mindset, spiritual warrior culture and do that. And that's what would be my, be my advice to, to folks out there. You know, one of the original Promise Keepers things from the 90s was to ask people the question, if there was something I could pray for you for, what would it be? And it's remarkably effective because it gets you through the, how you doing? I'm okay. If there was something I could pray for, what would it be? Gets you down through that stuff. Yeah, yeah. I can tell you, I've gotten into more conversations, um, led people to the Lord in restaurants and whatnot, and asking my server. Hey, I'm about to say grace. There's something I can pray for. Yeah. You know, yeah. amazing. Oh, my my son's father took off and my son's this and it pretty and I've been giving him out, you know, local churches and pastors' numbers and unbelievable. I think that's great advice. Ask people how they're doing. And if you feel like you're getting the shrug off, what yeah. can I pray for? Yeah. And that, that takes you know what that takes? It takes for God's people to do that. It takes us to have some boldness and confidence in who we are. Again. We got the million bucks in the bank. Let's go in and start living like millionaires. We're, we're redeemed. We're his, we're heaven's reflection here on earth. Let's start boldly living like it and acting like it. Cause I, you know, it's funny. The same, our same brothers and sisters in Christ that are con- that would be afraid to ask that question. What can I pray for? They wouldn't be afraid to go live like a millionaire if they knew there was a million bucks <laughs> in the bank. Right. And that's the, that's the approach. And that, again, that takes boldness and it's just a gentle way of letting somebody know that somebody cares. And it's a little tap on the shoulder, I think, from their father in heaven and eternity that he's there for them as well. Matt, would you sign us off by praying for all the people who are suffering through this issue and, uh, and bless them? I will, absolutely. Father in heaven, we come to you right now. We thank you for this opportunity to be able to, to speak life, to speak purpose, to speak hope. We thank you for the power of technology to reach out to, to, through the uh, through smartphone and internet and people listening right now. I just thank you, Lord God. Father, there are folks out there that are carrying a burden that they feel like there's no hope. They don't know what their purpose is. They're not sure if they're going to make it through tomorrow. Father, I ask that you be with them right now. Anybody that's out there contemplating that ending their life, I ask that you stop the adversary, cease and desist right now. I thank you, Lord God, for ministering peace, that you minister serenity, put somebody in their life, whether it be a phone call, somebody knock at their door, something, let let Lord intervene right now. Father, I ask that you would sweep across this, this whole nation and cover this problem set of suicide. It's a complicated problem set. There are layers to it that we as uh, as as God's people and, and, the, and the, even the secular world have had a hard time wrapping our hands around it. But we know, Lord God, that as as your people, we've been imbued with Holy Spirit-enhanced discernment to be able to get ahead of this problem set. Father, I ask that you would cause God's people 
to have an, a measure of boldness unlike this world has ever seen before, that we're able to articulate and speak to those people around us. And when we see somebody hurting, we're able to pause and ask them, hey, is there anything I can pray for? And we can do that with boldness and clarity and have the, the words that the Holy Spirit gives us to, to speak to that person. Father, I thank you for you uh for ken and his ministry lord god i thank you for this opportunity father i just thank you that as as we push forward that kingdom men step up rise up they understand who they are in you they know that their leadership role in in your house in their families on main street on wall street whether it be at the courthouse where every corner of life academia entertainment media that god's people and men step up Assume that leadership role as heaven's executive agents here on earth to decree your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you, Lord God, that by your stripes we're healed, that the scourge of suicide is defeated. There's an answer, and the answer is anchored in hope in Christ. We thank you for that message being telegraphed throughout the world and that God's people are the messengers to share that, Lord God. We pray. Bless Ken. Bless his ministry, Lord God. Bless his family, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to On the Edge Podcast with Ken Harrison. For a lot of you, this is our first time meeting, and I want to tell the men listening about an organization I'm the current chairman of, Promise Keepers. Promise Keepers is an organization founded by Coach Bill McCartney that's led men across the world to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Promise Keepers is calling men back to courageous and bold servant leadership. To learn more and get involved in the mission of Promise Keepers, visit promisekeepers.org. Follow on social media or download the Promise Keepers app on Apple Store or Google Play by searching Promise Keepers. Through the Promise Keepers app, you'll receive access to devotionals, Bible studies, and other great articles and video content, and a community to build friendships, lead your family, and become transformative leaders. See you next time for On the Edge with Ken Harrison. Ken Harrison.